under a RELUPA, the conversion of real property on the church. And these landmark cases have used that to argue that that's exactly what they're doing in the process of building tiny houses and tiny house villages. Welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast, the show where you learn how to plan, build, and live the tiny lifestyle. I'm your host, Ethan Walvin, and this is episode 83 with Dan Armstrong. This is an exciting time in the tiny house movement as cities and states across the United States are looking at legalizing tiny houses in a lot of different ways. And there are many different strategies that advocates of tiny houses are going about pushing for tiny house legalization. I recently heard from a listener, who is my guest today, Dan Armstrong, about something called RELUPA, which stands for Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act. And there have been several examples now of churches and nonprofits using this law to push through the building of tiny house villages. This is completely new to me. And so I asked Dan to come on the show to explain what RELUPA is and how it can be used for the building of tiny house villages. I hope you stick around. All right. I am here with Dan Armstrong. Dan is a former pastor who is working with the Minnesota chapter of the ATHA, or American Tiny House Association to explore how religious organizations can serve the housing needs of communities by building tiny houses. Dan is also a former special education teacher who suffered a stroke in 2016, which left him with two disabilities. He subsequently left teaching and lost the level of income that came with his position. Dan's experience has driven his passion for serving the housing needs of the least of them in society, and he believes that religious organizations have untapped potential to do this through tiny houses. Dan Armstrong, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ethan. It's, uh, it, it's an honor to be here. Um, like I was saying before, we're actually doing the recording. You know, you've got this, uh, this listening audience of 15,000 people. You've been doing it for eight, what is it, eight years now, 2011? 2012 is when I started building my house. Yeah. You gave me an extra year. But you were doing it where there was hardly any leaders out there or any resources. Uh, you know, Tammy Strobel, I believe, was a, a real inspiration for yourself. And there wasn't really a lot else out there from, from what I understand. And so I think that speaks, your journey speaks so highly of you. So it, it you know, it, it's just an honor to be uh, a, a part of the podcast. So thank you very much. You're very welcome. I mean, um, so I'll, you know, I'll set this up and just say that you know, I received an email from you, from Dan, um, a few weeks back um, saying, hey, I created this document talking about R-L-U-I-P-A and how it can relate to tiny house villages. And I thought I'd just, you know, send it along to you. It might be of interest to your listeners. And so I wrote back and said, well, do you want to be a guest on the podcast to, to talk about it? And you said yes, graciously. It was uh, it, it was not, or I was absolutely floored because uh, it, it's not I, it's not that I'm a nobody, but I'm unknown, and uh, and so it, it's not. But thank you for setting up. Really, what it is is that it's it's my heart as a, as a former pastor. I believe that that the church ought to be serving not only the least of of them and within society, whether that be the homeless. But also those who are just simply struggling with their housing needs, and one way that they can do that 
and that you know is through tiny creating tiny house villages. There's a civil rights law that that's out there, and in my research and role within the Minnesota chapter of, of uh, the Tiny House Association, it's called um, it's abbreviated as RELUPA. It stands for the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, and in two landmark cases, it's actually led to the creation of, in one case, a tiny house village, and in the other case, uh, just a church creating two tiny houses. One of them was in my home state of Minnesota. It was uh, St. John's Episcopal Church, which is in St. Cloud. And the other one, which is actually more notable, it's a, a tiny house village of 20 people, or uh, going to be. It's in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, and that's in Glencliff uh, United Methodist Church. Well, bef- before we jump into the two use cases, which I definitely want to talk about, um, let's just back up a little bit and and just define what RELUPA is a little bit. Like, what is, uh, it stands for Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act. Um, what does that, what does that even mean? Right. Well, back in 2000, and, you know, I, I'm more of the, like, the site, not right. And what, what actually was happening back in 2000, um, and this comes from the Department of Justice, it's, it's a federal, which means so it's binding on all states. It's a civil rights law that, that Congress passed in 2000. And the reason why it came up and that Congress passed it was because that while religious assemblies cannot function without a physical space that actually meets their needs in land that is consistent that they need for their theological requirements, these religious assemblies, especially these new, smaller, unfamiliar ones, were being discriminated against on the face of the zoning codes. And in in this individualized um, and discretionary process of land use regulation, so it was to give them equal footing as as non religious uh, assemblies. Uh, so it's basically it, kind of acknowledging that a religious organization needs a place of worship or or of whatever, and that sometimes the zoning laws are you know, can be used against them in a discriminatory way? Yes, and that was happening. And for these new and unfamiliar ones, that was exactly why it was passed. It's not to give them superior footing, but to give them equal footing. It, and, and that was so it was in that sense, it was a civil rights. And that's why it's a civil rights law. Yes. Okay, so let's go on to then talk about, you know, you... In this document that you laid out, which hopefully with your permission I'll be able to to share with with our listeners, sure. You know how how does it relate to a tiny house village? How was it used to to create tiny house villages? Well, it was used to create tiny house villages. Thank you. And in in in, a sen- in the sense that it actually provides uh, four protections. And two of those protections was really what they focused on. So those four protections, uh, by a really quick summary, was it prevents governments from discriminating against religion. So if a Hindu, uh, you know, if, if Hindus in, wanted to create uh, to build a temple in a in a local area, local jurisdiction, the the government couldn't necessarily well they couldn't discriminate against them. That would be a, a definite a definite case. The second was it, it prevents governments from unreasonably excluding houses of worship in a jurisdiction. 
So if if their case was that they could be proven, that the reason the reason why a house of worship wasn't allowed in the certain area was because there wasn't going to be tax revenue generated. That could be a legitimate reason to file a complaint and have a relupa uh, case. But in the two specific cases, both in in Nashville, Tennessee, and in Minnesota, the, the two protections was, number one, uh, excuse me, which was the, the third protection, was that it requires governments to treat houses of worship as, with equal treatment as non-religious assemblies. And the fourth one was that it prevents land use regulations that pose what they call a specific burden on a religious exercise. So those are the four protections. And in those landmark cases, it was really the last two protections that they really highlighted. So um, you mentioned in there are two cases and that the one in Nashville is interesting because it's an interfaith organization that's operating through a church but that it's it's not really the church isn't building the the tiny house village it's an interfaith organization that's doing it no and that was the interesting thing about it was that the ultimately and we can get into this however you want to proceed that they wanted to uh the when there was a, the lawsuit on uh, behalf of the neighbors the the church first of all passed everything with regard to zoning and everything and what happened was that uh, that the neighbors, uh, under not in my backyard kind of a mentality, ended up taking them to appeals court, and the, and the zoning board had already ruled in favor of, of the church uh, five to two. So they, the neighbors then took them to the court, and they what they wanted to argue was that that this was not a specific religious exercise because. Because this uh, this organization that's called Open Table Nashville, that it wasn't a recognized religious entity, and they that uh, they ended up winning their case in court. So, I'll just say that back to you to make sure that I got it right. So that Open Table had everything cleared to build tiny houses on land that's owned by a church. They cleared the zoning, they cleared all the legal stuff, but then it was the neighbors who kind of had a, a NIMBY a NIMBY reaction and tried to stop it. Right. So it almost sounds like in that case, there was no fight with the government per se. It was more a fight with, with the neighbors. Right, because it had already been cleared. Uh, it had been cleared to the local board, the local municipality, 5-2. The neighbors then... Uh, you know, because they they had lost their case uh, in in uh, they you know they lost their case with the zoning board, then took it to the court of appeals, and they ended up losing in 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 the court of appeals. And their, their primary argument in in uh, in the in the court was that yeah, it would be a what's called a substantial burden, but those substantial burdens only apply to you know recognized religious entities, and because and what the neighbors tried to argue was they're not a specific religious group, therefore they can't have a specific practice. So therefore the protections of Relupa don't necessarily apply to uh you know, to uh to open table national. And what the church did to its credit was they said, hey, wait a minute, 
this is at the very heart and soul of, of who we are as, as a church. And so they stood up for, uh, you know, they, they stood up for, um, on behalf of them. And uh, in the end, uh, because the church was willing to take the heat for them and props to the church for their, their, their willingness to do that, they ended up winning, win, winning the case. And, and so when you look at the, and I can forward you this in an email with all the citations and everything, that actually might be more beneficial to your listeners in the end, because I try to heavily cite it, but it was the church that had won and what they decided, the courts decided, was that even though Open Table Nashville was the leaser or leasee of the church's property, the lease agreement doesn't negate the fact that it should receive the protections of Lupa because the church and uh, you know Glencliff and Open Table Nashville really share the same heart in the project, and for that reason, they should they should be afforded those same protections. Interesting. So do you see this as a potential model that that other people or organizations can follow? That's a great question. And honestly, my interest was when I learned of that, I thought, holy cow, here's a here's a church that has really set uh, the model, almost the template uh, for what to be done in uh, creating, uh, you know, if you wanted to create a nonprofit group, that had a heart for reaching out to people. And, you know, it's kind of a win-win in my mind. And this is where my interest lied in it. I thought as a former pastor, I like to see churches be involved in this, but also pragmatically, on you know, from the standpoint of everyone is looking for a legitimate reason, a legitimate way, a pragmatic way to be able to, to live legally tiny. And depending on how that church you know, that organization then, you know, therefore approaches their, their outreach. Uh, it, it could be a win-win for everyone. So, yeah, I, I, I see it as a potential, uh, a potential uh, template that could be followed. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of things to be uh, guidelines to be offered and uh, precautions to be had, but absolutely that's where my answer lies. So, in order to get protections under RELUPA, do you have to essentially sue someone? Or can you kind of cite this, could a church or a nonprofit cite this law in their seeking to create some kind of tiny house village for homeless or even, you know, low-income people? Right. And that's a great question. And that's a great lead uh, lead into... If you're interested in creating a nonprofit, there was a case that's known as Laboon versus Lancaster Jewish uh, Center Community Association, and this is a Third Circuit court, and this is in order to be a, a, a legitimate religious institution. They kind of laid out a template for what what you have to be and do. So we had mentioned whether. A religious entity participates in the management, like you know, members on the board, and whether uh, your the entity incorporates things like prayer and other forms of worship in its activities. Whether the entity, your entity, the nonprofit, includes religious instruction within somehow within the curriculum, and there can be a number of ways. And whether that entity is made up by co-religionists. Now, if you 
aren't those mindful of those nine things and you do it right, you, you probably would be considered a legitimate religious entity that is therefore entitled uh, to have, uh, to have a, a specific religious practice. And one of the things that's afforded by law is uh, a religious exercise can be under a loop, it can be the conversion of real property on the church. And these landmark cases have used that to argue that that's exactly what they're doing in the process of building tiny houses and tiny house villages. So that's to answer your question as is, is, is directly as, as I possibly can. Uh, those are things that you would need to be mindful of. And, and in a word of caution with that, I would also say, uh, this again, this is to not to give you superior footing and to somehow, it's not like the word Shazam. You can't just say Ralupa up here to a, a housing authority, the, the local municipality, and now you're the superhero who can you know, tackle anything. It's, it's not the way it works. But it does give you, it, it does give these different religious houses of faith um, a leg up, a much needed leg up. And there's also land use regulation uh, lawyers. Dan Dalton is one of them. He literally wrote the book on, uh, on, on these types of cases. So I would recommend if, you're, if someone is really seriously looking at this, not only to, uh, you know, to look into what those nine things are, but also to get the guidance, you know, some counsel of a lawyer. Yeah, absolutely. And it's you'll you'll probably need a lawyer anyway if you're trying to build a tiny house village be, just because right. You know, they they don't currently fall under many zoning standards. And a lot of what I just said really went into one of the protections of of you know, Relupa, but in my home state of of Minnesota here, if I can I've got notes here cuz I knew I would would be tired as, as they presented it, but they have this notion that we're, you know, we're there to, one of the protections is to uh, treat religious assemblies with equal tra- treatment. And it's really interesting, the argument that St. John's Episcopal Church used. And I think this is fascinating for a bunch of reasons. There's so much that's going on right now in Minnesota. In their verified complaint, they argue that in the district that they were in, which is uh, classified as R1, residential one, the city allowed for these kind of these types of dwelling units, single family homes, residential facilities with six or less people, temporary shelter facilities that housed four or fewer people, daycare centers uh, with 12 or less people, and better breakfast, uh, you know, B&Bs on a conditional use. Well, the church argued that that was unequal treatment because the city of St. Cloud does not allow for religious uses that save this, that serve the same purposes as those dwelling units or that have a lesser effect than those allowable non-religious uses. So it's really interesting. They also argue that 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 in that the city allowed for in in different parts of the city, the city allowed for sleeping in RVs. It is is a non-religious use, 
in these businesses, and it didn't allow then then uh, for the church for sleeping in RVs for religious uses, which sounds kind of funny, but it is in fact one of the arguments you can find it in their legal documents that the church uh, the church made against the city of Saint Cloud. Interesting. So my my point in sharing all of that is, you know, the city of Minneapolis now. A lot of people within the tiny house community know this that they've recently done away with a lot of the zoning that is that it's no longer R1, R2, and it is to undo the impact of the redlining, uh, the history of redlining and kind of the racial reconciliation of that. And so presumably, now with the way that the zoning is going on within Minnesota, or at least Minneapolis, excuse me, if you've got an area that is allowing these types if not more, then in order to put it on equal footing, if a case were to go to court or someone were to write a, uh, a letter to um, the city of Minneapolis wanting to build a tiny house village, they would have to consider what the non-religious purpose or uses were, were going on. On that note, there's a lot of interest. I mentioned earlier, a lot of interesting stuff. There is... Right now, there is, if, if your listeners look up uh, in Village, E-N Village, it is, it is an, uh, uh, it's an action that is called by uh, Hennepin County uh, Medical Center. It was a big a grant. And to build, basically to build housing pods. Uh, it's not a tiny house per se because it doesn't have a kitchen, but they have a center house and they have pods all around them. And... The city of Minneapolis has approved for that. Uh, the only thing that they're looking for is land. Well, speaking of churches, churches often have land. And so they put a, a big call to all the ch- churches in Minneapolis. One church, which is Elam Church, responded. And now they are together, collaborative, uh, looking to find land. And so, and a lot of that has to do with What's going on zoning-wise? What's going on with, uh, you know, the, the backstory, the history of these Relupa cases, and quite frankly, the heart of of a church that it recognizes it's part of our call to be good Samaritans for people, and props to them for recognizing it. Right. So it sounds like there's real potential for nonprofits who are geared towards and aiming to provide this type of housing to partner with a church to kind of come together and be able to be protected by Relupa essentially and and find land that's maybe owned by a church that could then be used for this purpose. Exactly. So in and, and that's the exciting part of of all this. So and I can again I can send you a, a lot of this stuff so that your listeners can can see all this, because a lot of it is pretty uh, in depth about the protections and me being having the voice that I have. And thank you for allowing me to excuse myself. Um, you know, within these protections, but uh, yeah, there's there's a lot there's a lot that's that's out there. And uh, props to again to Glencliff, props to Open Table uh, Nashville, and and what you have done with. Relupa, and uh, it's it's incredible. Nice. 
Well, one thing that I like to ask all my guests is what are two or three resources that have helped you on your tiny house journey, your tiny house learning that you'd like to share with listeners? Well, one of the first things, and I share this with you and just setting this up and testing to see, you know, the audio and whatnot. I have a seven-year-old son who is the love of my life, who, again, I support. His name is Alex. And he and I have been talking about going tiny for years. And he's just this great kid. He was super excited. And I told him I was going to be on your podcast. And I told him how many listeners that you had. And he's like, holy cow. He goes, Dad, are you nervous? Like, yeah, there's 50,000 people. I'm a little bit nervous. You could hear it in my voice, right? And he said, well, Dad, just imagine talking to 15,000 me's. So I love that kid. Love you, Alex. Everyone has has heard of your name now. So you're you're on the internet, buddy. The second second is there's actually from the Department of Justice, there is a a whole site that is uh, about RELUPA and the protections that it offers. I think that is an absolutely invaluable source of information because you want to get all the nuances of law. And the third, uh, the third resource is uh, is a Relupa lawyer out. I believe it's out in Michigan. Dan Dalton is his name, and he literally wrote the book on Relupa cases. It's a couple of years old now, but if you're going to go with someone, I would recommend you know going with the guy that wrote the book and going from there and just seeing, you know, where else you can go. Great. Well, I will link to all of the resources that you mentioned on the show notes page for this episode, which I will say kind of at the end of the the episode. But Dan Armstrong, I want to thank you so much for all the research you've done and for contacting me with this info and now for sharing it with, with all the listeners. All right. One last thing, if I can say a uh, shout out to Sherry Beth Rashan and Elizabeth uh, Fitzpatrick for starting the Minnesota chapter. And I, I know that they're always looking for expanding um, you know, their reach. And if anyone is interested, it's not only Minnesota, but the Midwest does not have a lot of representation. In the ATHA, you mean? Yes. Thank you. So Sherry Beth Rashan. And uh, so you can you know track her down there and and uh, join and and just get more representation. So whatever we can do to help, and and that's my heart to basically to serve both, you know, both the church and also pragmatically, you know, the ATHA that way. If I can use that means to help. Great. Well, Dan Armstrong, thanks again. Thank you. Thank you so much to Dan Armstrong for being a guest on the show. You can find the show notes, including links to all the resources we talked about at thetinyhouse.net slash 083. I've even included a link to download Dan's Word document that explains all about how Lupa can be used for tiny house villages. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash 083. Well, that's all for this week. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and I'll be back next week with another episode of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast.